0: Dr. Rhonda Higgins and we are talking about combating recidivism. We are trying to keep our folks safe. We are trying to keep them healthy. We are trying to keep them from going back into jails or into hospitals. So just real quick, just so you know who I am and why I'm even here and talking to you about this information. Um, I got I started my graduate work at uh, Pepperdine University and I originally started out working with juvenile offenders. I love the severely, severely emotionally disturbed youth as they were once upon a time called. Uh, SCD, youth and um the juvenile of uh, the juvenile offenders that were in that those that were on um in juvenile detention facilities some that were going to like the the boot camps and things of that sort so working in residentials as well those were those were my people there um as i just moved on in my education i ended up getting my uh doctorate degree at alliant university uh formerly known as california school of professional psychology and i got in clinical and forensic psychology and i actually <clears throat> wanted to move into working more with adults. What I learned with working with youth is that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, and it's usually a lot harder. You have a lot more obstacles, in my opinion, working with juveniles, um, just simply because you have parents, you have different uh, things to, to to kind of work with. And it's that's definitely a lot, lot more work, in my opinion. Um, I trained at the South Florida Evaluation and Treatment Center Um after I got my degree. And actually that was a, um, a forensic hospital, if you will. So I definitely had my own psychiatric units. I actually had two units that I learned under, one of which was uh, in guilty, uh, not guilty by reason of insanity and incompetent to stand trial. So that's where I really got my exposure um, in, uh, inside, the, inside of a correctional setting, if you will. Then I moved on into working, moved back to California, started working with um, telecare and worked with them for so, over seven years um, in the community with Justice Involved Mental Health. So that's where I got my experience in the community um, mental health arena. So right now I'm doing trainings. I travel. I uh, discuss global awareness about mental health. Um, the, the stigma is still very much there. Um, we're, we're very much more advanced in the U.S. when it comes to helping our uh, mentally ill and our criminal offenders. It's, it's not so much in, in other places. So I do try to uh, impart my knowledge there, partner with a lot of NGOs, um, provide resources and support however I can as they're trying to build mental health systems in, in other areas. So um, just my experience with recidivism or experience with working with members with recidivism, i um, I, I just going to kind of give you just some stats over like the last the last fiscal year, if you will, um, that that I worked there with Telecare. I'm no longer employed there with them now, but at the time, this was this was where I really got the bulk of my experience there. And that last year, we served about 360 members, and out of those members, 24 went to jail at some point. 17 of those um, were um, 17 of those 24 were actually parole violations, which. Doesn't necessarily count as recidivism if there's really no new crime or new charge involved with that, meaning they could have gotten a parole violation because they didn't show up for a meeting with their parole agent. They didn't sign in or turn in an hours for some group or something like that, Um, and they may have gotten a parole violation. So that's where their arrest may have come in um out of all of them seven were actually reincarcerated on new charges so that's how we yielded that 1.9% almost 2% reincarceration on new charges so recidivism rates were pretty low there um 3.8% psychiatric hospitalizations we didn't have too many people going to to hospitals and uh, i believe we had two that were actually in hospital in hospitals for more than 2 weeks during that time um I can honestly say that my stats have not always been uh, at those numbers or at these marks. It definitely was a challenge, and um, even I wasn't always a program administrator. I had different positions within this program from a uh, team lead to a clinical director to the program administrator. However, in this year in particular, I was actually the, the program administrator, and I actually saw a lot of things change. Um, and just in my growth in the company and the organization there, just with how we uh, treated our members, just with the outcomes and the um, the results that we got. One thing that also was really good with, uh, with the program was that we were actually able to really combat recidivism because of um, housing support. We were able to discharge a lot of members um, into either supervised or independent living situations. A lot of them were able to stay with their homes, or 14% maybe went to other, um, other types of housing, residential settings if they needed sober living type of settings, um, treatment things of that sort. But for the most part, a lot of them really did go into their own their own homes, which was which is a lot because majority of them have never even had their own place, along their own, their own room sometimes even. So that's a big accomplishment for them to get housing and to be be safe. A lot of you are familiar with the housing first model and it works. It really does work to get them housed and it, it totally alleviates a lot of a, a lot of battles and challenges. Um employment we did really well with that as well. At least I consider that really well. The 15.4% of our members were employed and 30% of them were at least enrolled in school or some sort of vocational program. That was key for our, for us in our program. That was key for getting our members connected to the community. That was key for getting them busy and having some purpose and really finding what they wanted to do and, and having hope for themselves to recover. So. These may not sound like you know uh, the, the antisocial things or the criminogenic needs that we are going to get into, but I will say is this is what definitely does help with the uh, keeping your recidivism rates absolutely low. So how did I achieve these outcomes? Um, it was a lot of work. It was a lot that I had to do. I will say that once upon a time, our recidivism rate was a lot higher than that. It was almost in the 50%. We had a lot of people either going back to jail or getting uh, going back to hospitals too. It was, it was a lot that was going on and hard to kind of grasp at, at one point. I will say that it really just required a lot of program restructuring and um just looking at my program and taking a serious serious look and evaluating what i really had what i was really working with how my team was really working on to improve these numbers um I, I can't lie i mean my numbers were hurtful i didn't want to be uh one of the programs that had a high recidivism rate um i can honestly say in our our defense that definitely there were some probation or parole violations i'm sorry that were included in that that may not have actually led to a new charge um, and some of the way that the data was collected, but nonetheless, it still was a number that we needed to work on to get to get down. Um, absolutely, we need to change the way we operated, and we and we figured that out really quickly we need to change the structure of how we operated. The housing support, as I mentioned was definitely a key. The or uh, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations is uh, pretty much where you're going to get your members or your referrals are coming through um, for those that are on parole um so they really just um actually changed or modified the the contract that we had with them and actually allowed for housing dollars to come in that was definitely helpful um we were able to really provide housing for our members find find vendors that were suitable and i mean suitable housing because Every house isn't for everybody, you know. You can't just put somebody there because you want them to have the roof over their head. Like we really we tried that. <laughs> that didn't always work as so well either, but the housing support was was key. Um when I rebuilt the team and we really had our boots to the ground just really making sure we had strong partnerships in the community. That helped. That helped move us up lists. That helped get us um in on on certain things or get or get notifications of certain things maybe a little bit earlier or even just somebody thinking of, looking out for us, oh, telecare is coming, so we're gonna be sure we set this aside for them. Things like that are what you want. You wanna be a good partner to, to your community because you want them to look out for you because you're looking out for them. You're keeping them safe. Um, collaborating with, the, with CDCR, your parolees, uh, your parolees and your parole agents have their own relationship, right? Um, it may be good, it may be bad but you have to have a relationship with them as well. And that's what we definitely really relied on CDCR's collaborations, their efforts, their support, and using that as leverage too often um, when we did run into challenges with providing services, or providing treatment or engaging with the member, um, making sure our services were intentional. That was that came down to the program, that came down to really just holding staff accountable and really getting down to you know what are they doing when they're out there in the field, when they're meeting with their members. And getting service data paying attention to that kind of stuff so i'll touch on these things um, throughout the training. Um, the this could be a training within itself on restructuring on operations. I could probably spend another 4 hours on that alone, but I will touch up on it briefly. So you guys can kind of get an idea of what strategies and what operations or what program structure truly works with this population. Um. So from a clinical perspective, we had to make some changes too, right? So we had to think about how we approached treatment, which included lots of training on trauma, trauma trauma-informed care, and how to provide effective treatment for for trauma victims, for trauma survivors, if you will. But was first and foremost was safety, Um, Keeping the community safe is is your number one priority. That includes the member, that includes you, that includes your organization, your team, the member's family, the parole, everybody, the community at large. And there's specific safety considerations that we want to think about with this particular population. They have different experiences, guys. They have different things They come, they're coming with different attitudes, they're coming with different baggage, they're coming with different perspectives as well. We need to consider that. We need to understand and meet them where they are, be on their level, if that makes sense, okay? And protect ourselves and them when we're working with them. So they, um, we also want to identify some needs the criminogenic needs. Now, this is where the meat and potatoes come in, okay? This is where you're really identifying what's going on with this member so I know what do I need to treat? What are specific needs that are, that with this specific population can contribute to recidivism? What are some things that I need to work on to bring recidiv- recidivism rates down? What are some things that I need to do to meet these needs so that they don't engage in criminal behaviors? That's what we're looking at as well. So we had to really just... Uh, totally just revamp the system, if you will. This then translates to how we develop the treatment goals. Once we have all of this information, I can sit down with my member. I can plan with my member. I can think about these things and I can relate to my, member, to my member's needs and what they want. It's all about being recovery oriented. And this is where your power comes into play. For those of you that attended Marcelo's training, I know he went into great detail about power, empowering your member and what that looks like in, in the service plan and what that looks like during treatment your members are the driver of the treatment. We're passengers. We're, we're in the passenger side with the Waze or the Thomas Guide or the Maps app, whatever you want to call it, giving them directions, letting them know when there's an accident, letting them know when there's something on their way. But they have to be the drivers of their treatment. We have to be there for support. They have to feel empowered. Otherwise, you're just telling them what to do. They've been having that all their lives, probably. They just left for somebody being told from somebody telling them what to do. They have to have a stake in it. They have to have a buy-in with it. And we have to be recovery oriented when we're providing this treatment, okay? Um, I, can, I, can, I can say it again, your, your program culture, your program structure, those are your primary interventions. Those are your primary interventions. It's how you treat these, how you treat these members, your approach to these members and your approach to the treatment is going to take you far. They need to they need to like you and they need to respect you, hands down, that, 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 that's always what's gonna get you through. So let's just talk a little bit about the, what is recidivism. Of course, according to the National Institute of Justice, it's a person's relapse into criminal behavior, often after the person has received sanctions or undergoes intervention for a previous crime right? That's the National Institute of Justice <laughs> definition. Recidivism happens before the, behavior, the criminal behavior, okay? Um, there's a lot of intervention that you have to, that, that have to happen before that criminal behavior. You get signs before this criminal behavior starts. It's our job to intervene as we see it escalating. It's just like a balloon as we see it to grow, grow, and it gets tighter and tighter. At some point, we're looking like, it's gonna pop it's gonna pop at some point that's where we start intervening we need to start letting some of that air out we need to let some of that steam out let them blow some of that stuff out of there so we can't just, just think about just the whole the, the focus on the criminal behavior what's leading up to that what are the needs that what are their needs they're trying to to, to meet okay that's what recidivism is recidivism is members not getting their needs met most don't want to go back to prison that's not the game that's not their goal they don't really want to go back into that lifestyle most want to lead productive lives crime-free they want what we want a house guaranteed meals clothes that fit a cell phone with data and minutes a job or a means of income purpose sense of belonging a, a you know a love in their life a spouse companionship these aren't things that are difficult. These aren't things that are heard of. These are things that we all want. And so when you look at it like that, and when you look at your members like that, it humanizes them just that much more. And if you can satisfy some of those needs, they won't have to go to those criminal behaviors. I've seen a lot of criminal behaviors behind bad relationships. (laughs) I've seen a lot of criminal behaviors because somebody was hungry. I've seen a lot of criminal behaviors because somebody was ill and didn't get the treatment that they needed. So there are other factors that are coming into play that we have to hone in on, that we have to get a grasp on before we even start talking about just the criminal part of it. When we want to look at real world perspectives. More than 34 persons released are rearrested in five years. And when I say 34 persons, those aren't just people with mental illness. Those are people just in general. So I want to be clear about that. These are people that are just released, every, everyone that's coming out. Our reentry council is using, or the reentry council is using evidence to research how to reduce recidivism. That's the goal. That's why we're here. That's why evidence-based practices are there. Crime rates have definitely fallen generally everywhere, but we don't want to necessarily say co- it, it's, it's, that's the cause of it. I mean, it could be correlation. It be, could be causation. I mean, it, it just it, we just have to really kind of look at that. Um, if crime rates are falling because there are different public public there are different policies and different administrations in place, there may be things there that are meeting other members' needs to where they don't have to engage in crime. Maybe there are more stringent laws that are you know locking down on crime There's, there could be a number of different factors of where crime rates. it may not just be because people are coming right out and going right back to jail because they're committing crimes for a lot of different reasons. Um, one half of all adults have been touched by the Child Welfare Services as juveniles. So it starts early. <laughs> and what actually just want to go back to, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It starts very early. It starts very early. 95% of youth, and I mean youth just as involved youth in Los Angeles County, have been touched by the welfare system. It goes deep. It starts early. So trauma-informed pathways, uh, trauma-informed pathways that people have when we meet them, those are the things that we have to think about. Where did they come from? What have they seen? This is what they're bringing. We have to recognize that trauma. That's one of the major objectives that I'm going through today is really understanding where that trauma is. And because this this will give you some insight into how they're going to respond when they're in treatment, what kind of treatment they really even need. And we want to keep them accountable because we want them to be accountable for the actions we, for their actions. We want them to know what they're doing and the impact that it has. But jail or prison or a hospital may not be the answer or the best method of getting that message through to them. We can do it in a lot of other ways. There's lots of teams approach. There's lots of programs out there, but it can be done. It can definitely be done. So again, like I said, um, we want to really think about, oh, did I over... Oh, sorry. I thought I skipped a slide. So we really want to think about what are our goals when they're coming back? When they're coming back, when I say coming back to the community, getting out, leaving the leaving incarceration, being discharged, however you want to call it, they are re-entering the community. We want to reduce recidiv- recidivism to arrest the behaviors. We want re-entry starts at intake. Okay. It starts day one and it should really start in jail. <laughs> it should really start there. Just like when you, when we have and we're meeting with members and they're coming in for this first time and we're saying discharge starts at intake, right? We start planning for a transition and discharge on, upon intake, same thing. It should start out day one in the jails and the prisons so, so that they can plan to come out. It's a continuum of care. It's from the prison to the community. It just doesn't start when they get into the community. It looks at an individual's risk. It looks at their criminogenic needs and a, devel- and a working and developing relationship with the community. They have to have a relationship with the community. If they don't have a relationship with the community, then what? They're going to fail. They need the community. You're not going to be there for them th- for the rest of their life. The goal is to provide intensive treatment and to discharge so they, th- they can so that they can become independent. We don't want to make them dependent on us at all by any anyway, means. So we recognize these traumas, okay? Trauma can lead to dependencies. It depends on what kind of trauma they've been through. It depends on what kind of trauma they may have experienced, okay? Um, trauma can be with a lowercase t or a capital T, as I call it. You know, it may be life thre- It may not be life threatening, but it could be life altering, okay? Those with a lowercase t, I would say, would be you know, grief and loss, uh, stress, you know, depression. Those with a capital T would just probably have a PTSD diagnosis, something really major that is definitely impacting their life, not just a single event that's kind of going on. And these are the things that we have to think about. I'm going to pause for a quick second before I go deeper into trauma, just to check in and see if there are any questions, anything like that. I don't see anything in the chat, but I just definitely want to check in and see how we're doing. All right. I don't see anything, so no news is good news. I'll keep going. So I'm not gonna go into this too much detail. I know Marcelo kind of really kind of touched upon this in his training as well, um, about recognizing the differences in trauma for those that deal with uh, probation, uh, people that are on probation versus those on parole. There's a difference. There's a huge difference on being on probation and being on parole and coming out into the community. Very huge difference. So and these are just I'm just highlighting some of those differences here. Again, I know Marcella went over that in the previous training, so we won't spend too much time. But please understand that if you were used to working with probation, working with parolees is going to be a little bit different in the sense of the type of trauma that they may have experienced. So you're gonna deal with more of the psychological distress with somebody that's on parole because they've been in there longer, okay? 14% 14 of inmates report that they have some sort of psychological distress while incarcerated. I can imagine, you know? Jail doesn't sound like fun. Prison doesn't sound like it's even any better. Um, I I can imagine that there's some psychological distress there. Um, Three times more than the general population probably, okay? 40% report that they have a mental health disorder. That's reported afford it and that's a lot we're saying that 40 percent of inmates are saying that they do have a mental health disorder like we're, we're reaching we're, we're nearing half we're inching half and it's probably probably really close to the half or maybe a little more than that if we want to get everybody that's reporting but some people aren't reporting um compared to what 25 percent of the u.s population is suffering from mental illness um and and with this much with these disorders with this distress in 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 our correctional facilities, we really don't have a lot of in-prison services. They're actually being reserved for their more secure facilities for those that have higher risk. So we're not really getting a lot of support in there. So when I'm saying that we need to start from day one, day one isn't always starting where it needs to be. So keep that in mind when they're coming to you as well. These are some of the challenges that you got with them. 18% receive treatment versus 41% of women receive treatment while they're they're institutionalized, okay? 25% report needing treatment, over 50% of women report needing treatment. And when they get out, 15% reported having a diagnosis ever that were men, 36% of of women reported ever being diagnosed. So it's there. the, The mental illness is definitely there inside. And if they're not getting treatment, that's a problem, okay? That's a a real problem. And and they're coming to us now. So some of the other institutional traumas some things that you want to become familiar with, there's so many aspects that are removed when they are starting to reenter the community. We want to think about that too. They're used to the comfort and familiarity of their cell, of of chow time, of structured things happening. Um, If they've been there for a long time, it's really easy to, to fall into that trap um safety is another issue um they may not feel so safe there in the in inside but we also have to think about how safe are they out in the community we don't know what they're coming back to we have to examine that we have to make sure that they're not going into an unsafe si- situation and what kind of support are they really going to have you got to think about their families now they're going to deal with somebody that's coming out of jail that they or prison that they haven't had to deal with or talk to for a long time they may be estranged um they may have still some bad blood there you know there's still maybe some resentment some contention under some things brewing they may have burned some bridges around there so there's a lot that they're holding on to and they're anticipating and these things are going through their head before they even get out so please understand that this stress is still really still it's, it's still there they may be excited to get out but there's some other things that they're thinking about too there's racial traumas that are going on. We have BLM and the Black Lives Movement. Asian, Asian uh, violence is, is definitely the, the more notable one that's right now as well. So these are things that they're gonna have to deal with and suffer with as well too. These are things that trigger them, okay? Uh, I can recall uh, working, working in the office and when George Floyd happened and when all of these things were going on, it was hard for the members there. Those were very hard therapy sessions. We had to hold specialized groups. We had to allow people to vent. We had to allow people to debrief. We had to allow people to share their own experiences. It's a lot. So please, please, please be sensitive to that as, as well and check your own biases. I mean, we we have them. We're human. We've had our own experiences. I'm quite sure we can have our own categories of people and, and, and stereotypes and labels. And I'm sure we're all been guilty of it. And, and that's not the point to point the finger. But what is the point is to highlight that you are, you, you're a person, you're human, and that does impact the next person. But when they're encountering law enforcement and it's a bad experience, those things are triggered for them all over again. They start getting mad at their parole agent. They might <laughs> start getting mad at you because all of it is seemed as you go- we're all together. The many microaggressions that they may experience in the community from jobs to housing, you know, seeing in a uh, wanted sign. And then when you walk in, it's gone. And all of a sudden, you know, oh, it's been filled. But then you see somebody else come in that's of a different race and they get the interview. So things like that happen all the time. We hear about it on the bus, um, not stopping, um, not being able to get a cab. Things like that happen all the time. We have to be prepared for that team. We have to be prepared for that. So I wanna kind of move into uh, the community integration piece of it and what it really looks like bringing them, when they when they're getting out, what are we dealing with? What are we looking at? The mental health problems don't go away, that's for sure. If they had the mental health problems while they were in there, you're still gonna have them when they get out from the arrest of the community. It's only one factor too. Mental health is only one factor that you're dealing with guys. Even though we're mental health providers, it is only one piece of the puzzle. We can't just treat the mental illness. Mental illness actually isn't isn't even a criminogenic need. So treating just the mental illness is not not enough, okay? Um, But you have to treat it. It's not acne. It's not a rash. It's not just going to clear up and go away. It may subside. And maybe, you know, you, we, we get that. It, it can be controlled. It can be maintained, but doesn't necessarily go completely just away. Um, they're not exclusive. Like, like I said, it's, it's not a VIP party. It's not a VIP admission to where mental illness is the only person at the party. It's not only there are definitely other factors that influence the ability for someone to be drug free and crime free. Some of these additional factors are, are listed here. Okay. And this, this this is actually where the recidivism starts. This is where this is where it starts. These are the needs that aren't being met that cause those criminal behaviors. Okay. So for example, if there's a health problem and they 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 can't go to work. Or they can't rely on family support if they're available the family may be reluctant to help them and get them to appointments and make sure their medications are there um they may not be able to take their medications so now we have symptoms exacerbating whether medical or mental health symptoms things like that happen all the time now they're self-medicating or borrowing or stealing somebody else's medication or just going out and, and doing things that they don't need to be doing because they think it's okay when it's really not when it's really not. So unresolved mental health and substance use problems, they are already complicating a difficult transition, already, or a challenging transition, I should say. I don't wanna call it difficult, but there are some challenges, okay? Um, Individuals with severe or unmanaged health problems, they face face adverse outcomes, definitely more than what the normal person would, including the physical illness, including the relapse into drugs, including particularly the mental illness and their inappropriate behaviors that actually get them in trouble with the law. So um, in a study with their, when we talked to members who had come out of a prison, one thing that they did report was, these were members with mental illness, I said, I'll say that, um, poor health, they reported still having hallucinations, they reported mm-hmm. having suicidal thoughts, they reported, you know, um, violence, acts of violence, okay? These are the things that they are reporting that are happening. Listen to your members, okay? Listen to your members. These are the things that they are saying are happening. Listen to your members. What's not really happening, it's been reported, substance use, um, some criminal behavior as far as, you know, uh, and being reincarcerated, but not to the levels of significance for those with mental illness, surprisingly. Those without mental illness are much higher on these no scales, much higher reports of substance use, much higher reports of criminal behavior, much higher reports of, of, of reincarceration. So just really quickly, just kind of want to ask you guys, why do you think that more people with mental illness and using substances aren't getting as arrested, aren't getting as those with, with, without it? Any thoughts on that? Sometimes they end up in the hospital instead. Yep, that could be it absolutely they don't get counted <laughs> they don't get counted for the criminal part at least yep hospital yep because we're looking at the yeses and those yeses fit hospital criteria right so if they're reporting those poor health and suicidal thoughts that sounds like that, somebody's gonna, that sounds like a pet team call that sounds like a pet team call right so address the yes Address the yes. These are things. Oftentimes, we're really focusing so much on the criminal behaviors, the substance abuse, the reincarceration, when that's not always really the focus. We we could be missing it. We could be missing it. Address the yes. Address these poor health. Address the hallucination and the suicidal thoughts. Address the fits or um, propensity to violence. Am I making sense with that team? So uh, one thing I want to talk about um, is th- when they talk about uh, physical illness and adverse outcomes. So if you if you are having physical illness, you and it's getting and it's not being treated whether physical or mental health. I, I, I won't even just, just leave it at physical, physical or mental illness. If it's not being treated, if it's untreated, you're still going to have more problems. That's when your no start to increase on the substance abuse. That's where the relapse starts to come in. When we don't start treating those yeses, when we don't start addressing those yeses, those other parts start to come into play. And like you said, they may be sent to the hospital and hopefully, honestly, honestly, I hope they do go to the hospital. I'd rather they go to the hospital than it be have a, an encounter with law enforcement that don't know how to really respond. It's a much better outcome. And I will say, um, in my experience with law enforcement and having to call the police for situations for my members. And I can just really speak for, for the Newton division. That's what I've had the most experience with in Los Angeles. Um, they are getting a lot better about their responses. Um, there is a lot more training going on with the police departments and uh, how they are responding to uh, mental mentally ill um, calls or calls that are re- resulting with cognitive people with cognitive delays as well. Um, so it's, I can say that there are some improvements, some of which being that a supervisor needs to come out and kind of supervise the situation and see how everything is kind of going on there. the The downside is that it could kind of take longer to get a response um, because they got to get all these extra people kind of involved coming in. So if it is life threatening, it's you, you need to say that. you need to really be, you know, very, very detailed in your your reports to the police. I will say that. so, just kind of want to put that out there. But yes, we want to address the yes, because mental health problems lead to inappropriate and criminal behavior, which can lead to that law enforcement response, which we don't want. So just a little bit of some some differences between men and women or some gender differences with those that are reentering the community. Both face problems with employment. Both place problem, problems with employment. That was there wasn't really any, many differences with that. Both pretty much get financial uh, family support in some of the same ways. Men sometimes a little bit more than women, which I thought was actually surprising after reading um, the stats. You you would think that sometimes the the women would get a little bit more, but actually the men do according to the to the studies. Um, housing there's definitely differences with housing. Um, men had a much harder time. I'm sorry, women had a much Harder time um, staying housed, okay. Uh, Men were easier. They were easy. They were made. They were easier to secure housing. It was easier for them to maintain adequate housing, for whatever reasons. I'm just curious with you guys out there that 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 deal with uh, members and housing and things of that sort. What are your experiences with men and women? Are men easier to find housing for, or are women easier to find housing for? What would you guys say? I can honestly say um, for me and in my experiences, women were, it was a lot more difficult for me to find housing uh, for women. Um, someone says, I think men are willing to move into any neighborhood when women are more concerned about their safety. Key, very, very true. Very, very true. Um, maybe because women reunite with their children after incarceration also very true love these answers these are things that you got to consider because sometimes housing does not allow for children and oftentimes that's 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 a no-brainer that's a that's a that's a deal breaker for a lot of women not going especially if they want to be reunited with their kids so there's it's, it's limited i rarely see anything for men and kids rarely i think i may have seen one or two programs for that in in my career honestly Um, that's unfortunate, you know what I mean? But we want fathers in homes and we talk about fathers being absent and what the impact of that is, but there's not a lot of programs for, for reunification with fathers. We got to do better with that, you know? Um, and let me see if there's anything else. There are slightly more housing opportunities for men. I would agree with that. And uh, the other part of that is that most people tend to think that the more offenders are men. There are more men. They're they're more men on caseloads. The the young man that just responded that he's his caseload is primarily men. You'll see that. You'll see that. That's another factor too. Um, there's a, a site in Palmdale. There's a long waiting list for single fathers. That's awesome. That's awesome. We need more of those. We need more of those. Um, if you if you have that site or can whoever uh, if you can send that in the chat group, if you know it, that would be incredibly helpful. I love resources. So um, that, that's, that's just something I want to check in with you guys about that. So what's the solution? I've talked about a lot of problems. <laughs> I've talked about a lot, a lot of problems. What are some solutions? What are some things that we can totally do to fix this problem? So there's still some barriers and I'm only going to point out the obvious ones because these are things that I just want to shut down e- immediately already that we already know. There's lots of fun- lack of funding. We already know that. There's lack of psychiatrists. We know that. I'm sure plenty of you guys have experienced um, psychiatrists. Just we, we really need them, um, whether they're on the computer, whether they're in an office, but it is definitely a shortage. Um, there's also a, sh- a shortage of effective treatment programs. And what that really truly means is that... <clears throat> We, um, we need more research and more training in some of these evidence-based practices that we have here. We need more specific healthcare um, problems and services like that population I just spoke about, the single fathers. There's more, there's more services that we really need to assess and more needs uh, as far as what our, our members are really needing when they come out. The supply is just not quite meeting the demand. And so these are some challenges that you're going to have to deal with. I'm not trying to just, you know, rain on anyone's parade, but I want you to be prepared because you are going to have to strategize around these issues, around these challenges, okay? There's the socio-demogra- that socio-demographic variations, like we just talked about with housing. Employment is another one too I'm going to talk about. Well, so 55% working at least 24 hours um, a week. That's not bad. That's that's, that's over half of people at least have a job, whether it's at least a part-time gig, right? So there is some hope with employment. Um, I was really happy to, when I did my my research on that, just to see how well employment was going for our population. And we have to check on this research because it changes. We have to check on these stats. Um, but I was really, really excited to see that this stat had improved. 55% are working, that's power, okay? That is a lot of hope. So it's not everyone, but it's not too bad. So what we got to do now, examine the contributing factors that are preventing or impacting employment. Address the yes again. What's keeping, what's, what's, what's that other part of that population? What's that other percentage doing? Why can't they get to 40 hours a week? Is it, is it And it may not be that they don't want to, but they just can't. Maybe just just mentally, physically, maybe they just can't. Maybe that's all that they can truly give and that's okay. Because what that 24 hours is doing is not always about the money. I can tell you that much, it's about the purpose. It's about having something to do. (laughs) It's it's about about being important. It's about having a completely different role, a new role added to to yourself. You're You're not just a mother or a father or a son or a daughter. You're a labor man, you're a cook. You're a chef. You're a, you know what, whatever you, whatever it is that you're doing. You're a tutor. You're a mechanic. You're a construction man. You're a longshoreman. You know whatever it is, you're giving back to the community by leading substance abuse or co-occurring disorder groups. Okay, having some sort of purpose. Mental health impacted men's ability to secure employment. I saw that more often. Um, then then that uh, I saw that I can actually say in my practice a lot more often than with women um, men when men got a job, they were able to, to to really stay there and keep it and really the main thing that cost them their jobs was was decompensation, honestly, I noticed that quite often in my experience that and, and a lot of that may have to do with the fact that men's identity is really linked to finance. Um, that's just kind of the, the world we live in. It's kind of just, you know, h- how we are with our gender roles here in the U.S., I'll say that for sure. Um, and that's a lot of pressure when they don't have income. That's a lot of pressure when they're having the role of a father or trying to be a provider and don't want to feel emasculated or, um, you know, just just reduced or, or, you know, dismissed because of their past or their history or their mental or their current mental illness. So I really can say that men, when, when men went to work, it was really, really powerful for their treatment. And I really did feel like they were able to maintain their employment a lot better um, than, than, than women. Women, however, um, they were able to secure employment a little bit faster, okay? If they had a, d- a diploma or a GED, they were much, much more likely to secure employment than, than men were. Um, so listen to our members. Why is that? Why is there a difference between uh the genders in that? Men may have more, you know, may may have more jobs and keep their jobs longer, but women are catching them a lot faster. Any any thoughts on that? Oh, let me let me let me go to the chat, guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) Let me look and see what we got. Oh, back to the question about the availability for men. Yes, definitely more beds uh for 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 um available for men in boarding cares than women in general for sure. Uh, replacing enforced identity of criminal or addict or mental health consumer with a positive, personally chosen identity based on employment and sense of value in the community. Absolutely. You said it, Yosef. Did I pronounce it right, Yosef? I got it? Okay. Absolutely. We got to change the thought process. You're going into, you, you're, you're segueing in here. You're segueing in here for me. And I appreciate that you're making my transition. We got to change the thought process we got to change who they think they are, who they see themselves as. That's where recovery-oriented treatment comes in. That's where your power comes in. That's when your team comes in. No, you're not that person. I don't want to hear the word inmate. I don't want to hear a number. I don't care if you know that number. I don't want to hear that number unless I'm writing it on a piece of paper, <laughs> okay? We have to empower them. that's where the recovery, you said it, sir. That is where the recovery goes. And they have to choose it. They have to choose. We can't say what. No, I love the way you draw. You're going to be an artist, okay? Well, maybe I don't want to be an artist, even though I'm really good at it. <laughs> Michael Jordan was really great at basketball, but he loved baseball. <laughs> but where did he get his fame? What jerseys are hanging up? You know what I mean? So it's yeah. You got to find what's what. You got to find the right fit. You got to find the right fit for them. Okay. Now, and, and getting back to the women with the diploma, women pursued education more than men. I noticed that. Women were pursued education a lot more than men, but the other, and, and that could be for a few reasons. One of which, what I found for, or one reason what I think in particular was that a lot of the jobs that were available for men with a uh, correctional past were hard labor kinds of things, construction, longshoremen, uh, things that men typically are male dominated industries that's changing a lot of females are in there you see a lot more females with orange vests and green vests and working out there with hard hats and things too um but i can say that i do feel like there are a lot more jobs um and uh flexibility with your uh criminal histories with men than there are they seem to be a little bit more forgiving with men, employers seem to be a little bit more forgiving with men than, than women for, for whatever reason. But if women are educated, they got it. <laughs> they're, 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 they're shutting the men down, they got it. Um, so continue to address the yes. When we're talking about co-occurring disorders, um, men had a lot more factors. And I can honestly say that I see this in treatment. I'm really curious to see how you guys feel about this and what you guys notice in your treatments, because they're all different. Um, women, one of the most contributing factors was that they were living in a bad, in bad neighborhood or what they call neighborhood disorder. Um, you don't want to call it the ghetto, that would be offensive, but for the most part, the ghetto or the hood is what, uh, a, a bad term for what it would be. But for the most part, living in a really bad area, um, where there's high, you know, crime ridden, um, impoverished, uh, drug activity, things of that sort. Those were the, those were the factors that led women more to lead to co-occurring disorders. Men, on the other hand, had a lot of other factors that led them to co-occurring disorders. Not just living in a bad neighborhood, that was one of them, but having bad friends, as well as the support from the family, what I like to call the enablers. This is the enabling property that's at at play right here. Why, I don't know. Why men are more (laughs) enabled than women, I don't know. But that tangible support from family seems to be able to of, of afford them the opportunity to be able to engage in co-occurring disorders, whether that means they have more money, whether that means they have their own place now where they can do it, whether that means their family is just so happy they're home and they're not going to bother them about doing it because if they're high or they're drunk, they're not bothering the family. Number of different reasons why it could be, you know, uh, the peer, the antisocial peer influences, they're, they're definitely influenced by their peers. If they got somebody's like, hey man, you fresh out, take a shot, take a hit whatever it is, you know, um, those seem to be stronger with your your male members. So address the yes. These are the areas of treatment that you want to really be thinking about. When you're assessing their risk, these are the areas that you want to be looking at. You want to be looking at what kind of area they live in. You want to look at what kind of support they're getting from their family. You want to look at what kind of friends they have, because these are the things that can lead to some co-occurring disorders. These are the things that can lead them to relapsing. So these are the things that you want to focus on. Address the yes. Address the things that they are reporting is making it difficult for them. This is what's making it hard, team. When we're talking about recidivism, um, 24% are, are engaging in, in criminal behavior, male and female. That's that's just you know, holy women have four times are more four times likely to engage in criminal behavior. Um that's interesting actually i will say that um i've seen this stat before um, in a number of different places i've seen that women are likely to engage in criminal behavior than men and um could be a number of different reasons for that um i think that women have how can i say this i think that women have more paths to crime than men in my experience and i would love to hear from you guys on this and when I say paths to crime, than men, um, whether that be a more history of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, a crime being inflicted on them. When I say pathways to crime, not necessarily crimes that they've been committed, but crimes that have been committed towards them. Um, having antisocial relationships, the trauma, um, economic and social marginality. Men tend to make more than women if they're doing the same job. That's even still today, <laughs> even if you're not, uh, you know, in this within this population. Um, and, the, and homelessness you know again we, we go back to the stat of women having a difficult time you know finding it finding and securing housing so all of those factors you know and and some can lead women to engage in more criminal behavior whether that is prostitution whether that is selling drugs whether you know it, it can be a number it may not look very violent they may not be out carjacking folks. They may not be out there gangbanging or robbing folks or killing folks like that. But they're still engaging in criminal behaviors. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? It may not be. just may be a different degree or a different level of it. Um, and and your experiences out there. Do you how, do you guys have more men than women? Are you guys treating more men than women or? How many of you guys are treating a lot of women? I'd like to hear from those folks that are treating women out there. What are your thoughts on on this set or any of the other ones that I may have mentioned that... I'm just curious, especially particularly with those with the women. I said, it's been my experience the majority of women get caught up with risky behaviors due to being involved with guys that introduce them to that lifestyle, 100%. Um, I work in an older adult FSP and the majority of our clients there are, are men. The majority are going to be men. The majority are going to be men that are in our programs. And I think that goes against uh, that, that goes, speaks to the previous step that I mentioned that they're going to go to the people with the higher risk, the more secure facilities. Those are the ones that have the higher crimes or the level of the severity is, you know, a lot higher. So that's where they're going to go. It's like I kind of mentioned, women may do some crimes, but they're not considered as heinous or as dangerous, you know, um, they're more going to cause harm to themselves than other people, so to speak. Um, so there, there are some differences there and we have to think about that team. So just giving you some points of when you're planning your treatment, what, what's out there, what's, what, what are some things you want to consider when you're doing this? Uh, let me check the time. We're going to take a break in about five minutes, guys. Um, so again, addressing the yes uh, once more here, and you we want to look at the, the family conflict and antisocial peers. Um, if men have family conflict and bad friends, horrible combination, <laughs> horrible combination. This is typically where you get your gang starts. That family conflict, and family conflict can look different. It doesn't have to be a domestic, a domestic violence. It doesn't have to be abuse going on in the, in the home. It could just be that nobody's there. It could just mean that we don't have a relationship. It could just mean that there, there's just not a lot, of, there's some neglect going on. There's a lot of things that could be going on when it comes to family conflict, okay? So having some problems at home with the family or who you consider your support system and having bad peers or peers that are doing bad things, Ah, It's a recipe for disaster. People tend to go to their friends when their family is not acting right. (laughs) Those are our go-tos. That's where we do. That's where we find some solace sometimes and vice versa. When our boyfriends or our girlfriends or our best friends aren't acting right, we go back to family and we talk about them. So I'm saying that jokingly, but at the end of the day, my point is these are core relationships. These are core parts of you. You tend to bond with, with people who are like you. You guys share the same values, beliefs, experiences, perspectives. That's what makes you guys friends. Family are people that you learn from, things that you've grown, grown accustomed to. These are people who have made, made you up, good or bad. You can still have some bad influences in a family too. I know some members that couldn't, that, you know, holidays were hard. Think about that. I have members who could not go home for Christmas or Thanksgiving because they knew that alcohol was going to be the life of the party at that event. It would be nice to say, hey, you know, so-and-so's coming over, so can we not have booze? Can we put it away? But no, people people, people, people don't do that. People people don't do that. If they're going to have that there, they're gonna say you need to have your self-control. So that's what we teach, right? (laughs) That's what we work on with that, with that particular member. So we have to think about whether how their family comes into play with with women again the um, the increased family support and the um, and the bad neighborhood that led to recidivism for, for them. So it just really just seems like you know that fam- that family is key. And sometimes if women got too much support, they did the wrong thing. <laughs> well, too much of a too much of a good thing can turn you bad. That's what it sounds like here with the with the stats. um i think i'm gonna stop right here guys um i'm gonna take a quick break let's do five minutes bio stretch that kind of thing and then we'll get into reentry planning the basic elements of that how's that sound team so we can come back it's what 9 57 so yeah about 1002 1003 ish sound kind of good all right guys see you in a bit thank you All right, guys, we are back welcome back hopefully that was a quick stretch and bio break that you needed there. Um, Real quick before I move into uh, the next the next topic there or I just want to check in are there questions comments anything that anyone has that. um, Anything anything just curious where we where we are things of that sort are we we okay we we good anything there nope i don't see anything coming up in the chat so that's good all right let's move into it so we're going to talk about now just the re-entry planning process we've <clears throat> this is pretty much what this looks like from them coming from the prison to your program. So we kind of got an overview. I'm sorry, there's a train going by. We've kind of gotten an overview of, um, of who they are, what's, their, what's, what's going on with them while they're incarcerated, what they're coming out with. Now, what are we gonna do with them? Okay, so that's what this is all about. What are we gonna do with them now that they're out? So some basic things, we wanna do pre-screening, even within several months of discharge. I don't know if your program affords you that opportunity. Okay, I'm not certain how the referral processes are, what the referral processes are for the different providers that are on, uh, on the training now, but it could, um, if if it's at all possible. For you to do any type of screening or to know if this person is coming to your program within you know a few months or so, that is exceptional. And I'm probably like rubbing on a genie limp by even saying that because <laughs> most people are not afforded that opportunity. Um, uh, oh, someone has a train coming by. You live by me, baby. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, but yes, um, you if you have that opportunity to do that, do it. Do it. What's often hard, though, and I can tell you what the challenge of that is, they don't always have a parole agent assigned to them that early in the game, which prevents you from even getting them because most often you don't get them until the parole agent is even, signed, is, is, is even assigned to them. So this kind of makes that process a bit of a dance. Um, when we collaborated with the, with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations, there was a program specifically um, what they called pre-release. So what we would do is we would get members, get their background, get their information. Um, if we were able to get a pass or we needed a pass to go into the correctional institution, we could do that and do screenings or assessments that way. Um, and to kind of get an idea of what this person was looking like so that when they got out, you're prepared you got their supply of med- medication ready. Their appointments are already set up. That's an ideal, perfect world. So they did pilot that. It didn't go as smoothly um, as it probably could have. But I think that there's just a lot of, you know, there's it's just a lot of work on the correctional teams and we just kind of have to get on the same page a bit better. But if there's any way that you can work with CDCR to find out um, if you can get in there and do some type of pre-screenings before they get to you, this will definitely give you a heads up. Your risk assessments, I'm not gonna go into those. You guys know what risk assessments are. So just do them, do them all. Violence, DTO, DTS, all of them. Whichever risk assessments you guys use, I'm sure they're fine. Um, not gonna go into different risk assessments. I'm sure you guys have that. Um, the housing piece, definitely key. You wanna be sure that you can, I, I can't stress that enough and how much the housing will, will save your life, save your time, and it'll really definitely get you some some um, some treatment progress really, really soon benefits they need to get an identification first and foremost they need a california id um their parole id will work for a minute <laughs> but you want to get them down to uh the dmv to get an id they can also and actual parole department or and you can also uh the department of um, motor vehicles they have a a uh, a waiver so where they don't necessarily have to pay for for the IDs and things of that sort. So I would definitely get that. Um, Parole agents have them as well if you can't get them, but you can always go, yeah, yep. I was gonna say they're yellow and blue, it's on it. Those are the two forms that you need for your members. You can request them, they can, I requested them um, from the the dmv.gov and they've sent me packets, get those get those. Um, if your member, they, they go through, the they have a mental illness, that's considered a handicap, it's considered a disability, walk them on through, they don't need to wait in line either. Okay, I hope all of you guys know that. Um, if not, know that, okay, for yourselves, even any of you guys that have a handicap, placard or anything like that, walk right on in, don't you wait in that line at the DMV, you guys get spe- special treatment um, for disability. So they have a disability if they have a mental illness. So, you want to get the release of medical information. I cannot say how difficult this can truly, truly be because we often don't know what the heck happened to them before they got to us. We don't know if there was in prison treatment, we don't know if they had therapy. Everything is going to kind of be self reported, and you pray they are not a poor historian. But you if you can get any type of releases of information um, from when they were in prison, from a previous treatment program, that will definitely help. Again, it's history. It's static at this point, but it may definitely help. help. Yes, it pulling teeth. Oh, my God. You almost have to give your own teeth to them. For them to give it to you, so it's difficult to get records. It's really, really difficult to get records. I know people who are have been in limbo for SSI cases for years because they couldn't get a medical record uh, for from prison, and the judge is like, "No, I need that. I'm not. I'm not moving forward. You do not pass go. You may not collect two hundred dollars. None of that. I need that record, and it's hard. It's hard to get." Um, getting a supply of medication. This, um, this, this, I won't say this is necessarily hard, but it's definitely you know something that can that happens. Um, oftentimes they'll be released and they don't have the proper medications or the medications that, they're, that they 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 were taking is probably maybe not be right or something like that. So you want to get the supply of medica- medication that they're on. Definitely get them a psychiatric appointment with um, you know, ASAP within a week of their discharge, get them their treatment referrals, whether it's gonna be for uh, substance abuse, <clears throat> whether they may be, maybe they need to take parenting classes, anger management, whatever, court order things, try to get those things in place, set them up for success, because these are the things that are going to keep them busy. These are the things that are gonna keep them structured. And these are the things, these are the foundations that are gonna need to be successful. Uh, I'm go to the next slide here. So um, mental health courts, I just wanted to mention this um, real briefly, but let me ask, take a real quick poll. How many of you guys have experience with mental health courts or deal with mental health courts um, in your agencies? A little bit, no, that's awesome. I love hearing, hearing about clients graduate from mental health courts, okay. Um, for those of you that have had some experience with mental health court on a scale of one to 10, one being blah, it was horrible, 10 being, yes, that was definitely everything. Um, what would you say the impact of that was with the treatment? Here's the thing with mental health courts. It's, it's, it's a gift and a curse in some senses. I, I, Linda gave me definitely the, the pieces of the curse that I was going to share for sure. Um, the gifts are, is it, you get a lot of different people who normally don't deal with this population on the ground in these meetings, if that makes sense. You get a lot of people who make decisions about folks from paper. Okay. They haven't met with the member. They're not as involved with the treatment. They don't, they don't, they don't get the story that Linda is sending, right? Or sharing or, or talk to the member. What I have found in my experience with the mental health course is that decisions can be made from a multidisciplinary approach. And you can get a lot of resources from a lot of different folks. Um, and it can help. It can definitely be stressful. I am not going to lie to you about that. Um, it's pressure for the member. Um, typically, if they're not doing well, because they have this fear and the anxiety and the tension that they're going to be reincarcerated, they're going to get a bench warrant or anything or something like that. So, and it definitely depends on your judge or your commissioner, or who's ever you know you know in charge of the of the court. I've seen good and bad. I've, I've sat in on mental health courts when I'm just like, you guys are throwing this man's life away for absolutely no reason. And I've actually sat on somewhere where it's like, oh my God, this person was really gonna get some help. I'm so glad that so many people were here to hear about it. So um, it, it can be mixed, um, definitely. But um, just just real quick to, to review the slide, uh, it allows defendants, uh, allow defendants that meet the criteria for a mental health condition to receive community-based treatment and uh, to seek prevent to seek to prevent any continued involvement in the criminal justice system. That's the goal. That is that is truly the goal. But I'm looking at the chats here and um, uh, there's some PDs that aren't very reachable who weren't very reachable, who wouldn't answer until the week of the hearing. I could, I, that's actually pretty good that they answered a week during the hearing. Like I've actually had some that didn't answer just the right before their client was supposed to appear it's it's a lot of players so there's that you know it's just like going on a, a group travel trip when you got a whole lot of people a whole lot of personalities a whole lot of different stuff going on you got a lot of different players and personalities to adjust to sometimes with your members and sometimes it feels like everyone's not on the same page I will say that but I think that if you have a strong team you're able to communicate effectively and collaborate it can be positive um, the research definitely shows that, that it's, it's, a, it, there are, they, they are, they are effective, but fairly new. So there's definitely some more research is needs to be out there. The most recent study was back in 2017 that found that um, criminal defendants that actually graduated from in mental health programs or mental health court programs, like the one, Nicole, her, her graduate, um, they were significantly less likely to be rearrested within three years. Um, so, there's that's, that's some promise there. Um, we, we, we would like to hope that a lot of people talking about this person and the criminal justice system being involved should reduce some of recidivism. Um, but again, you have those other factors that Linda explained and described, like it can be anxiety provoking. It can be a trigger for your members. So, but it's definitely something that they are going to have to do. They don't have a choice not to go, right? If they're going to mental health court, they got to be there. So that's something that we got to work at. Um, so we're talking about co-occurring disorders. Eight point five billion people are suffering. I would say that's not just you know um, that's not just justice involved. That's just people in general. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people that are suffering from um, from <clears throat> from co-occurring. Forty um, percent mental health disorders. Um, that's what that's what they're reporting. Thirty percent of people having just dis- it says substance abuse just because that's just the the literature uh, how it reads, but. I, co-occurring disorders only, um, and there's a lack of a, available evidence-based practice with training. So these are some things that we also want to consider when it comes to co-occurring disorders and, and our members. So I definitely recommend doing your co-occurring doing your co-occurring assessment. That's hands down. Getting them referred to a program um, if they need to be in residential treatment, depending on how active they are. Um, also getting them connected to a substance abuse counselor, a sponsor, things of that sort, because we definitely want to to combat that. Um, I will also say that sometimes services are limited. Funding is, is definitely limited when it comes to substance disorder. Some people, some counties don't necessarily want you to even write your notes about substance abuse and things of that sort If the program isn't specifically a substance abuse program. Uh, it, it, it varies, but what I will say is co-occurring disorders don't go away. They're definitely important and you gotta treat them just as well. And you gotta really, really focus on those that um, that are actually really looking for the change too, because they're out there. A lot of them don't wanna be addicted. It's, it's hard, <laughs> it's definitely hard. And those other factors that, that we were talking about, that housing, that employment, those things like that, the, the poor health, the, the mental illness not being managed, that'll lead to that. That'll lead to the co-occurring, that'll lead to the self-medication. Um, the system is not made to be easier, or helpful for those who have to navigate it, unfortunately. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm not going to argue with that at all, hands down. There's some, I say it all my friends and I say, it, academia is not always on the ground. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's, there's a lot that we have to, to, to work with, with our, with our system so they can truly understand the needs of our members and how to really, really work with them, um, and, and, and what works best. Like I said, uh, co- co-occurring disorders, there's low reimbursement costs. So a lot of insurances or a lot of insurers, they don't want to include that. Um, so the, the psychiatrists, you know, tend to deal with, you know, some of these things as well and, and prescribing medications and things of that sort. Um, but the other part of co-occurring disorders is that your PCP, your, their primary care providers get burned out. Okay. once the money runs out when it comes to the co-occurring disorders or any substance abuse treatment, if you will, if the insurance isn't going to pay for that, like, you know, we start looking at the other illnesses that are going to pop up. Um, We start looking at how we can get them some more treatment or what 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 will an insurance company start to pay for so. it it gets really sticky when it starts when we start talking about co-occurring disorders and we have we rely on a lot of community treatment programs a lot of a lot of panels um you know self-help the aas the nas like we rely on a lot of a lot of those 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 treatments so it's it's a dilemma and because those treatments they don't cost really you know what i mean like so you know but insurance companies are are not 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 paying for that as much and we don't want our pcps to get burnt out dealing with co-occurring disorders that's not necessarily their scope. They're not always well you know, well versed on that, on, on, on how to treat that. And it burns them out. We don't want that. We definitely don't want our members going to somebody that's burnt out <laughs> because they're going to feel that. They're going to feel that impact of being burned out. And then you may not get the proper treatment because this person is really just trying to get you out of their office or give you what they think is going to be best. So we got to really be careful with the co-occurring disorders and making sure we're really connecting them to the treatments that are going to benefit them. So one thing I, I you, you, we got to think about is the fear. So when we're when we're planning for the reentry, we talked about planning for the trauma. We recognize a lot, a lot of traumas, a lot of things that they're facing, and one of the biggest things they're facing is the fear of it all. Okay, um, the fear of the institutional removal and having independence sounds great. Independence sounds great. Being free sounds great, but being free sounds hard. It does. It sounds like I'm going to be responsible. <laughs> And I may not, and I may like the skills and resources to be responsible. I might not be able to pay my bills. I don't have any income. What do you mean apply for SSI? You know how long that's gonna take? Well, these are things that they're thinking about coming out. They don't come out with jobs. Most don't. Some maybe, but most don't, you know? So their fear of the community supervision. I got a parole agent, he's gonna be in my house. Do I have to go take a piss test? Do I have to do those are things that they're thinking about. Fear of reconciliation, making amends, looking back at some of the people that may have been their victims that got that sent them there. Okay. Those burned bridges, trying to rebuild those. I'm fearful. It's not easy to tell somebody sorry. It's not easy to tell somebody that you're wrong, especially depending on how wrong you are. This is, what they, this is what we expect them to do. Not just what we want them to do, these are things that we expect them to do. I'll go into 12 steps and talk about that, but making amends is one of the 12 steps, right? Facing that. I have my own issues with 12 steps, we'll talk about it. But yeah, you gotta talk about it. You gotta go and get forgiveness. You gotta tell this person, you you gotta do, you gotta, you gotta, uh, that sounds like a lot of pressure. I'm not ready to talk to this person even though I'm wrong. And that's okay. Tell them that, tell them that, tell them that that's okay. The fear of gang involvement. How do you know they're going because they snitched on somebody? How do we know that? How do they know they didn't sign an affidavit someplace? And they're waiting on him to get out, (laughs) waiting on him to get out. So now we gotta think about where we're gonna place him or move him or relocate him, whatever the other terms that we say when we're trying to move people, (laughs) right? So the 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 mental health in, insight, you know what? If ha, ha, now that they're in treatment, or if there's a mental health court involved, they gotta take their medication. Somebody's watching them. Maybe they didn't like medications. Maybe they didn't like what they took them, what, what they were taking in prison because that's all the prison could afford to give them. Now they're out, and some psychiatrist wants to put them on something new. They gotta tell their story all over again. I gotta make these meds adjust. It's I'm coming out with all of these on my first day out. All of this stuff is weighing. All of that stuff is weighing. So I go back to our original question. What's the solution? We're the solution. It's us. It's my heart. It's us. There's nobody else out there. Remember when I said from day one is where it should start, but it's not starting there. Prison services are declining. I told y'all that. It's not starting day one. We're day one often. More often than not, we are day one. Is that integrated care, the collaborative care model, your treatment team, certified community behavioral health clinics? That's us. We are the solution. That's what the community is relying on. Okay. The CDCR is not, doesn't take care of their parolees anymore like that. They're not, they're not providing the intensive treatment like they were before. They're, they're outsourcing to programs like you guys to be able to provide that support for them. You are their eyes and ears. Trust me, if something goes wrong, guess who's going to be at fault? <laughs> so understand what's going on here. We are the solution. You guys have precious car now. Precious, precious, precious. So, you know, make, make the progress count team. I'm going to pause for a second and ask if there are any questions, anything that we can I can address really quickly before I move on to talking about safety. Anything, let me check the chat. (laughs) Yeah, lots of idealistic folks in the PD (laughs) comments. Lots, yep, I see that. So when we're talking about safety, safety is key, guys. I can't stress that enough. It is the primary responsibility It is our primary responsibility. Before we start talking about treatment, before we start talking about (laughs) recidivism, before we start talking about anything else, we are required to keep the community safe. That's why you're here. That's why you're employed. That's why you have the members. That's why you got the referrals. That's that's your duty. That's your purpose. That's your job. It's to keep the community safe. That's why these programs are existing. That's why these contracts are in existence. We want to keep the community safe and the community has to keep the community safe, okay? That's first and foremost. It's the reason why we've been entrusted. We're mandated reporters. We're obligated to report crimes, concerns, and mental health emergencies. Say that from the start. And I'm quite sure you guys do. I'm quite sure this is how you set your boundaries. I'm quite sure this is how you set up. But right along where you're given that, you know, this disclaimer of how I need to disclose if you want to hurt yourself or report or anything like that, you say this one too about the the, the mandates that you have to, that as far as the, the parole goes. Their parole officer has something for you, you got to tell them. They need to sign releases of information with their parole officer so that if you can get information from them that you need or pass information to them because they may request a progress report they may request a progress letter they're going to want that kind of stuff and they're going to need that kind of stuff if they intend to get your member off parole early. or advocate for something for them, so we have to make it as though that they understand that the parole department is an ally now. I say that (laughs) with a little bit of salt. (laughs) Because you still got to deal with personnel in the parole department, okay? You still, not everyone is recovery oriented in the parole department, okay? They're not. They have their biases. They have their microaggressions. A lot of those things they bring, they bring their experiences. I've been dealing with this guy for 10 years now. He just won't get it right. I'm done with them. I hear it all the time. Give up, be finished all the time. All the time, all the time. So you will have to advocate often with them. However, they can really be an asset for you if you guys have a good collabor- collaboration. If you guys have a good team, you, you can do wonders with that. I can honestly say in my personal experiences, being able to collaborate with the parole agents and being able to collaborate with the liaison made situations a lot smoother. A lot smoother. You don't want to go back and forth with them. You don't want to go on back and forth with the parole agents. You don't want to go back and forth. With any. You want to advocate. You definitely want to advocate. I'm not telling you not to advocate. You always want to advocate. But please understand that they are in control of the supervision of that member <laughs> at the end of the day. So there's some things that we definitely want to adhere, to adhere to. Advocate, but don't argue. Absolutely. There's no need to argue. You're the expert on the mental health. They can't argue you on that. Right? <laughs> you guys have the degrees, you guys have the licenses. You guys are the expert on the mental health piece. They can't argue on that you give your opinion, you give what you want, you advocate as professionally as you absolutely can, but we don't want to be combative. We don't want to have conflict. we don't want to have that because it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help your program, it doesn't help you, and it definitely doesn't help your member. So keep that in mind. Be upfront and honest at the onset of treatment though of what your role is, is it because I'll tell people in a minute it's you know, it, look, I'm going I'm to sleep at night, y'all. <laughs> if I need to send you, put you in a hospital because you said something or if I report something to your agent for his for safety, I'm going to report it. I say that from the beginning. So if this is something that doesn't sound good to you right now, now's a good time to decide whether or not you want to join. If the program is voluntary, if it's not voluntary, they probably don't have that luxury, but most are usually voluntary. So, but these are things that you want to let them know from the gate, no secrets on the team. Don't tell me the same thing with the, when it comes out. No, you can't tell me that you kind of want to kill your boyfriend, but I'm not supposed to say anything. No, I'm going to ask my questions. <laughs> I'm going to figure this out. No. And if it sounds too deep, I'm going to report it. Plain and simple. Same thing when it comes to the parole agent and when it comes to, to crime and safety. Same thing. So, when you're, you, you want to stay safe in the field, right? You want to keep, make sure you're keeping the community safe. So, how do we do that? We do our risk assessments, definitely. We already talked about that. Um, you want to do your risk assessment the intake during treatment, annually, PRN, as needed, all the time. Assessments, assessments, assessments. It never hurts to assess. I know it can be tedious. I know it can be just, just, just mundane. Your member can get tired of it. But trust me, it's the one thing that'll save you. You know, It's definitely the one thing that'll save you should, should something go left. And we never want anything to go to left, right? So um, definitely be sure. But you, you want to know what you're dealing with. You wanna know what their violence, what their propensities for violence are, what their substance abuse is looking like. So you wanna get this information. Be mindful of your area. I've kind of talked to you guys about that again. Be mindful of gang territories, hood days, gang feuds, colors. This might sound like, huh? Like why did, I, you gotta think about that. You're in the field. I had a member, a team member that planned to go see another, uh, a, a client of ours, a member of ours in the community. And I don't know if, if, you, are, if you guys are familiar with, um, with the different areas and things of that sort. So this is kind of like the Baldwin kind of area, um, typically called the jungles, um, if you guys are familiar with the, the, the area term, if you will, the gang term for it. Anyways, there was a big feud kind of going on. We knew about it because we stayed closely connected to our parole agents who also gave us information about things like that that are going on in the areas and he had on his Dodger blue outfit. Nice outfit, nice LA blue hat, Dodger jersey, and he's Latin, right? So he's giving his morning report, he's got his agenda out. And I mean, he was one of my top, 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 top notch employees, like hands down, awesome. So he's going through his agenda and I mean, he's got awesome intentional services. And I'm just like, yeah, that's great. Not today. (laughs) not wearing that, not going over there today. And his whole face, he was so disappointed. He didn't get it. And I just was like, you know, I can't. I can't let you go out there like that today. And I need you to understand what I'm saying. I'm not going to allow you to risk yourself. You're Latin. That is definitely an African-American territory right now. And they are not getting down with Latins right now. It's not the time to go on that side of town. Definitely not in LA Dodger blue attire, which is also affiliated with Latin games quite often. So that's what I'm talking about. When I broke it down that way, he's like, oh, I didn't realize that this area, yeah. Know where you're going. You can get a gang map. You can call CDCR, you can call your parole agent, you can call the, your local police department. You can get a gang map of your area. You can do the area for your particularly you know, providing services or you can get LA County all in general. They'll have it in color, blues and reds. They'll also kind of even have it um, um, etched out to where the names of the gangs are or the areas of the gangs are, but at least that's helpful for you and your team to know where you're going and where you're placing your member. Ask those questions if they're gang affiliated and be mindful of how you ask the question so it doesn't sound like it's an assumption, if that makes sense. You wanna ask the question for for safety. I'm asking this because I don't care. what if your blood, I, I don't care. That's, that's neither here nor there, but I do care about the safety. I do wanna be sure if I need to find housing for you, I'm not gonna put you in a blood area and you're in your crib. <laughs> not gonna do that. That's not safe for anybody. I'm not gonna go provide treatment if, I'm, if you're in that situation, right? That doesn't sound safe, you can't, I don't wanna endanger anybody. So those are things you gotta consider. That's come from a collaboration with your CDCR, if you don't know. I had a lot of people on my team, honestly, that kept their ears to the streets and they would say, hey guys, I heard about such and such and such beef. I heard about such and such and such gang. You know, it's, oh, it's uh, some, um, wh- what is it? Uh, there's There's certain gang days or hood days depending on when, you know, when when the organization started. So those things will be, you know, really popular. You'll see a park that's heavily populated or meetings heavily populated, you know, with gang members. You want to know about these things, okay? Because you just don't want to run into them and just, it, it's not worth it. I don't need to t- dress appropriately, of course. Wear wear anything that you can book it. You know what I mean? Be able to run. That's what I always say. Wear, Wear stuff to run. I want you to be professional. I want you to look nice, but I want you to be able to run more importantly if that ever comes up. I need you to be able to get out of there and get safe. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I definitely just feel like this is safety. Know your entries, know your exits. Who's in this house? Any dogs, any animals? You got snakes. What's going on in the house? Make sure you know all of that information. Sit and stand near the door so you can get out. Okay. Look official. Wear your badge. Have a clipboard, have a messenger bag if you need it that has a, the, your organization or something like that. I'm leaving very little in there. Don't don't put much in there. No money, no wallet. Maybe your car keys and your phone. Like that's about it. You want to go as basic as you possibly can. Use your judgment, use your spidey sense. I tell people that all the time. If I'm walking up on a, a, a home to meet with the member and there's a whole bunch of guys out there and they're shooting dice and drinking, I'm probably not going to just walk past that. I probably, I probably won't. I'll probably call the member and say, hey, can you come out? Can we meet someplace else? Can we reschedule? Um, don't, don't do it. You know what I mean? I just, I'm not there. I'm not in the moment. I'm never going to be upset for someone who said it did not feel right. It did not feel safe. I have no choice but to trust that. And I just say, just please afford your teams that because it's hard out there. It truly, truly is, is, is difficult out there. And we don't want to take that for granted. Be consistent and firm with your boundaries. Set that at the gate. You know, the moment that someone says something inappropriate, they'll try you. Ladies, oh, these men will try you. Men. These ladies will try you. most definitely. It's what they know. It's what's worked. It's survival. You know, I don't use the term manipulation because it's not recovery oriented. You know, they're resourceful. You know, how many times have you said, "Can I speak to the manager?" it's Not working out with you, whoever this is talking to right now. Can you put the manager on the line? Is the supervisor available because you want to get whatever the manager comes out and fixes your problem. How many have had that experience? I know I'm not the only one that calls the manager when I don't like what well, someone's saying I'm something I don't like. It's not just me, right? But it's worked. It's happened. And you can't expect them to do it. It's learned behaviors. Going back to what Yusuf said, we have to change that identity. We have to change that thinking. This is learned. This is what this learned behavior It's social learning. They've been rewarded for that behavior. Birding has gotten them something before. Money has gotten them something before. Offering this, offering that, bartering, it's gotten them something before. Being nasty, being rude, cursing you out has gotten them something before. So keep that in mind. Keep, Keep that in mind. And that's where we have to change those cognitions and change those rewards. Basically changing the social learning. That's where the treatment comes in. We'll get into it. So like I said, the, the risk-need-responsivity model. So I know if you attended the previous training, Marcella went into this um, on a very general level. I am actually applying practical approaches to the RNR model. And this is how we pretty much operated um, at, at my program there. Okay, So just to kind of just recap real quick, your personality disposition plus the social learning, like I've been kind of talking about the rewards, that's when they're going to give you the criminal behavior said it best he pretty much covered that so I was like oh you're just seguing." and he pretty much covered that slide <laughs> in that comment so basically yes that social learning that criminal thinking that criminal identity that's what's going to give you that behavior okay so that's where we got to stop that's where we got to you know figure out what the heck is really going on here okay so in in looking at this model okay um Basically, the gurus of Bonta and Andrews. Those are your, your two guys that are all over R. Okay. This is this is this is their baby here. Um, when we're talking about the general personality, that's where we're talking about who this person is, their personal disposition. A lot of the times that we're coming in with, with these members in particular, they have those antisocial patterns. Not to be confused with antisocial personality disorder. It's not the same. I'm not saying APD. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is there are some characteristics. There are some features that may be there, okay? First of all, just breaking the rules. Just no regard for the rules. I don't care about these rules. And that will transfer into, into your, pro- uh, we were supposed to meet at 10. Yeah, I know it's three, but I want you to see me right now. That's what that could look like in your office. And you're like, no, I'm not gonna see you at three o'clock. Like, no, I have to set this boundary. So that's just a minor one, but you wanna think about that. Um, so when we go to the cognitive part, we, this is their thought process. Okay. Deliberate self-conscious self-regulation, it's intentional. Okay. Social learning, the social learning part. This is what we want to teach them. This is what the, these are the things. These are the things that are getting them to this part. Does that make sense? They're learning to engage in this behavior because they have friends or family or school, or they're seeing this with somebody else. They're learning that this behavior is okay. Okay, they're getting rewards for it. A reward from from drinking is being drunk. Just simply being intoxicated. Now you're the life of the party. Everyone wants to be around you. You're fun. And you might be the most boring person when you don't have alcohol in your system and you don't feel like you're worth anything or that you have a sense of belonging or purpose or friends for that matter. People people may tell them, you are so much better when you're drunk. You're a happy drunk. Things like that all the time. Okay, that's how they learn these things. Being impulsive just not being able to delay that gratification that's where we have to incorporate that self regulation we really need them to be able to regulate themselves and manage that control that delay that gratification you just can't just instantly act on some things like that think about it way pros and cons being self-centered not giving regard about other people (laughs) not just not not caring pro-criminal attitudes I'll take it if it's mine if somebody left it there they must not want it so they must want me to take it no not necessarily we can't just turn it in we can't tell them hey you left something here so thinking about things like that you know those are just those are just some of the attitudes and the approaches that they may have these are things that we got to work on this is the thinking that we have to change this is that stuff the need for excitement like this adrenaline rush they're adventurous let's do something different shallow affect like just again that lack of remorse not really caring it's just not really being phased by anything So values and beliefs and behaviors, all of those things come into play. If you were taught, you don't steal, you don't take, or you share, you're supposed to do those things. Those are things that resonate with you and, and, and and create your character and determine how you behave or interact with other people. If you've been taught and groomed and, and just thought that who cares, it's all about you. Every man for themselves, crabs in the barrel. I got to get what's mine. Different very different. That could come from a lot of different things. It could come from trauma, it could come from survival. It could just be, come from just being incarcerated. And yeah, it is, you gotta get there first, whatever. But it's there. And it's a thinking pattern that has to change. Uh, Cheryl says, I heard a couple of our members doing math together to determine how much they would have made and if they took minimum wage job and remained in the community versus the quick money they got from dealing and the number of years they lost to incarceration. Like that's a lot, (laughs) lost to incarceration whether they were caught and not able to make the money. Um, that's a great intervention that we can use with others going forward to combat impulsivity and choices. I agree. I agree. That's a lot of thought, guys. They're smart. These are idiots. <laughs> Our members, they, they, they may be ill, but they're not stupid. They know what's going on. That makes sense. Would you not do that? Would you, are they not weighing pros and cons right now? are doing I'm looking at how much money I can make if I go on if I go on this end and I'm looking at how much you telling me I should go make legally to stay out wow it makes sense we gotta make it make sense that's our job and that's not easy you're combating that you're you're competing with a lot I have members Cheryl's right like, we've had members that come in and say well I'm making about five thousand a week ten grand a week on the streets right now You want me to make almost that, what? Every quarterly? Every six months, maybe, depending on the job or the hours that I have. How do you compete with that? What do you say to that? You know what I mean? So that's where purpose, meaning, and value starts to come into play because that's hard to compete with. That's really, really hard to compete with. So, you know, with respect to the criminal behavior, you know, we really really, just really want to think about All of these things when it comes to their personality, really, and they they may not have all of them. I'm not saying they're going to have all of them. They're not going to totally look like this, but these are the things that you want to be thinking about and how in the the thought process that they probably are having with that type of personality or with that type of personality characteristics or attitudes. And then we want to really think about the social learning piece that's going to make sense and make them change that. So if I can change them for the worse, I can change them for the better. If I can reward them for the worse, I can reward them for the better. Does that make sense? So we want to do a real survey of their needs, their strengths, focus on the central eight. And we'll talk about that as well. So the three principles, predict the risk. The criminogenic need in the, is in the treatment design and the delivery and your responsivity to treatment, okay? The risk principle, the risk principle asserts the criminal behavior, we can reliably predict it we should be able to predict it. That's where your assessments and things like that come in. What's going on? Where is this member at risk for? The need principle, your assessments, your psychosocial assessments, your strength, your SNAP, your strengths needs, ability preferences assessment. I should be under to understand what those needs are. I should be able, now that I know what these criminogenic needs are, does my member check any of these boxes? And I'm gonna show you, we'll, we'll go into that in just a second. What is, the, what is the area of treatment need for this person now? So that's where the responsivity responsivity to treatment provision comes in. How? How do I provide this treatment? Not everyone is the same. You can't do just CBT with everybody. You can't just do MRT with everybody. You can't just do DBT with everybody. It's a combination. You have to be eclectic. You have to figure it out. You have to be able to figure that out and see what's going to work best for your members. Does that make sense? Um, there are a number of principles that are that are added to this R and R model. Um, the additional principles that I would say that that make this model work are the importance of, of staff establishing collaborative and respectful relationships with your clients. There's your program culture. There's your program structure. Again, that's your primary intervention. You need to have the relationships with correctional agencies and providing your managers and leader and your leadership uh, that facilitate these effective interventions. They need to know what's up these are the people that are actually putting these these work into process or working with the direct care staff that are doing that. So your culture, your structure that matters and how these services are delivered. I kind of said this risk is who the need is, is is the what in there and uh, the responsive, the responsivity is the how. So when we're talking about the risk principle here, um, and the the risk to the the risk to reoffend so what we want to do is match the level of treatment hands down you want to match the level of treatment if you have someone who is a low risk offender you don't necessarily want to provide them with intensive services if you have somebody that's a high risk offender you don't want to just not provide them with intensive services it needs to match it needs to match so and why do we want to target our risk offenders I want to ask you guys that. Um, what what would you say? Just really quickly. Um, low or high risk offenders, would you say you're speeding, or is it a a mix with your? I'm I'm just kind of curious. What what do we have out there? Would you consider your members low or, or high risk? What would we say out there? No. Um, do you notice differences in your levels of treatment or, um, when I'm saying notice differences, notice differences in responses to the level of treatment with your with those that are low offenders or low risk offenders versus high risk offenders. Do you see any differences in how they respond to treatment? Any? But what I will say, though, is that lower risk offenders, low and medium risk tend to adhere to treatment. There it is. I was just about to say that. Lower risk offenders pretty much uh, are, are, it's a mix, but I I tend to see more low risk offenders than higher, honestly, um, in the communities. And low to medium risk tend to adhere to treatment recommendations. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. They're easier. They're a lot easier to deal with. They're cooperative. They're usually a lot more hopeful. But- it's kind of like, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it because we treat them better? Because we like them more? Because they are cooperative? And they have less of those needs? Or is it because, you know, those other people aren't working because we stereotype them? We don't pay that much attention to them. We're afraid of them. We're not we're not assessing their needs like that. We expect them to go back. (laughs) So it's a difference. You know, Um, it's definitely a difference. So but the risk principle it pretty much says the offender of recidivism can be reduced if the level of treatment services provided to the, provided to the offender is proportional to the risk to reoffend. we got to match it. If they have a high risk to reoffend, we want high levels of treatment. If it's a low risk to reoffend, we don't necessarily need high levels of treatment with that. Am I making sense? There's two components with this. There's two components. The first is about to reliably predicting this criminal behavior. So as the risk level increases, the amount of treatment increases. Okay. I mean, I can't stress that enough. Make, design it, design it, design it, design it, design it, please. Um, so for low risk, I would say that you have about approximately 3% recidivism reduction with low risk offenders. Not much, not a lot, right? um high risk it's about 10% recidivism reduction which is better that's a lot better um so it just really just it just it just kind of depends on what on what the situation really is I see that you know for the most part it really just low risk offenders just may not be have recidivism rates just simply because they are more cooperative that's not what they're into their mindset is different their criminal identity is not really there there's a lot of other reasons for the low risk, but, that, but you'll find that out with your risk assessments. You need to find out what level they fit in so you know what you're working with. You know, okay, this guy I don't have that much of a chance from probably recidivating. This one, maybe we need to watch him a little bit. I might need to see this guy, my low risk guy, maybe once a week. My high risk guy, I might just see him two to three times. I might need to be in more groups or her. So, and just doing in an Banta study in 2000, just so, just so we can see how the really, what the real effects of treatment are. Minimum treatment for those that are low risk, 15% with the recidivism. If when they got intensive treatment, it increased to 32%. So it's like we gave them more <laughs> and they went worse. Does that make sense? So, with minimal treatment for high risk, the recidivism, recidivism rate raised at 51%. But when we gave them intensive treatment, it was only at 32%. Does that make sense? So the high risk, they need the intensive treatment. They need it, it works for them. It doesn't work for your low risk people. They're at the same level. I like to refer to that as the helicopter healthcare. It's like the helicopter parents, giving them all this love, all this joy, all this attention, all this safety, security, helicopter is so much I can't hear. It's loud. I can't see because it's dust blowing. It's a helicopter coming over me. I'm just caught in the whirlwind. It's overwhelming. Same thing with healthcare. You can overwhelm a kid. You can overwhelm the parenting. It's the same thing with healthcare. Too much of a good thing is not helpful. It leads to wasted resources. It leads to burnout. And it leads to the member being frustrated. Helicopter healthcare provider helicopter healthcare is, is more work. Figure out what your person needs and specify the treatment. Don't just overall do it. Just over, well, this works here. This COAG works for him. Anger management works for him. Seeking safety. You have to figure it out which one is going to work for that member. Not, it, you can't just do it all because all of them are evidence-based practices. They all don't need to be um, delivered. Can we get higher than 10%? I hope so. I want to get higher than 10%. I mean 10% of good. <laughs> 10% is good. But I'd like to get higher than 10%. And I say this too, um in, in speaking to the high risk versus low risk offenders, how many of you guys have lifers? I'm going to wrap this up too pretty soon. We're going to stop, but I just want to want to check in with that. How many of you guys have lifers or treated lifers? No one? Yes, Jill you have. Thank you, Jill. Okay. So um, or multiple incarcerations in the past, you have Erica. Okay. So here's the thing. In my experience, my lifers were like my top members. Those were like my model members. Those were the ones that committed the more, those were the murderers, those are the ones that committed the more heinous crime. But what I did learn is that we did give them much more treatment, definitely more intense treatment, because they were from higher securities, been incarcerated much longer. And what I learned for them, the reason why they didn't go back, they wouldn't go back more than with those that hadn't had been incarcerated that many times. Reason being maybe age, maybe too old to be committing crimes. The second reason is they got a second chance. Why? Somebody told them they were never getting out. You're in here for a life. You're not leaving. You will die here at one point that was their identity at one point that was their role at one point that was their thinking now i got a breath of fresh air i can smell roses i can smell fresh cut grass i'm outside i'm not going back i'm not doing a thing to go back you need me to come here every day you need me to do this homework what time is my appointment there's that has a lot to do with it i will say with that so sometimes people who have been locked up longer doesn't mean that they're just the harder criminals or they're the worst criminals as sometimes we may think. Those ones have, might have the most sense. I'd be tired the most, might have hit rock bottom the hardest and feel like I still have a second chance. I wanna be a grandma or a grandpa. I wanna do this, i want to go back to school. It happens all the time, it happens all the time. So what I'm gonna do is stop right there and we will get into our third objective tomorrow, which will be criminogenic needs. So, just to give you an overview for that, we will definitely go into the details of each of the criminogenic needs in the RNR model and how that applies for treatment or how that relates to treatment. We will also talk about um, specific interventions for those criminogenic needs. And we will also talk about treatment planning in the second um, session. So just wanna give you an update on that. Are there any last minute questions or concerns or feedback or anything before I break? I know I've been talking a lot, but I wanted to be sure that I got all of this good information in for you guys and that it's um, helpful and you guys are getting something from it. So anything team, anything in the last uh, four minutes we got here question is it tomorrow or i'm sorry the 14th friday i want to come back tomorrow i'm sorry friday (laughs) yes thank you uh friday the 14th same time same channel same place remember you need to attend that training as well to get the ceu units um if there's not anything else i thank you for listening to me i appreciate your attention i appreciate the feedback um We'll get a lot more practical next time, but I can't wait.